Hello, hello, it's Jacob Hill with GRC Academy. I'm here with Dr. Ron Ross from NIST. Dr. Ross, how are you today? Oh, Jacob, I'm doing great, and it's, it's great to be with you today. Thank you so much for coming on. And folks, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to like, comment, subscribe, share, review, all the things. And thanks in advance, it really helps me out. Let's talk about Revision 3 of 800-171. Can you highlight the notable changes in Revision 3? Well, I guess the first change that is most noticeable is that when you look at Rev 2, as I described earlier, our process in doing the tailoring, we wanted to take some of the complexity in 853 and trim it down. So the statements, the requirements were a little bit more terse. They weren't as well-defined. And over time, that document, those requirements in 171 are tied to 853. That's the source document for all the requirements in 171. So what happened since that original version in there are Rev 2? Well, 853 Rev 5 was published. When that happened, the moderate baseline, which is what the 171 was based on, was changed. And we added some controls to that moderate baseline. So over time, we have to update 171 so it's consistent with that latest moderate baseline. That was the first thing. The other thing we just discovered is that although the requirements were fairly high level and fairly clearly stated, the lack of specificity in those requirements were causing problems both for implementers and assessors. It's kind of a two-edged sword. You know, when your requirements are very high level and simple, it looks better in general when you first look at it, but then when you actually have to implement it, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered by the implementer. And of course, that same problem exists for the assessors. They were going to assess a very high level generic requirement. They had to actually break it down into those assessment procedures and, and the uh, determination statements, if you will, yeah. so they could do an assessment and, and have something that made sense and, and was credible. Well, we also looked at our long-term desire now. We had two frameworks emerging. We had the RMF and we had the ear and now we have the privacy framework, the cybersecurity framework, and people like to think of the 171 as a framework as well. People said, you got too many frameworks. You need to start to consolidate some of this stuff because at the end, it's all the same anyway. So we said, okay, we're going to make a strategic design decision in Rev3 to move the requirements back toward the original intent of 853, which means more specificity. And as part of that process, we had to bring in something called the organization-defined parameters, which for those of you who aren't familiar with that, it's the variable part of our security controls that was never really in 171 Rev 2. It actually was in 800-172. We had variables in those 172 requirements and various requirements, but the requirements to be consistent with Rev 5 on the security control side, moving back toward the original language. And we'd like someday not to even have to have a 171 separate set of requirements. We'd like to be able to express those 171 requirements exactly in the language of 853 using mm -hmm. the concept of an overlay, which is nothing more than a specialized view of a set of requirements and controls that apply to a specific community of interest, technology, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. environment of operation. So that's the high level. And of course, the public comment period was tremendous. We got it looks like almost a couple thousand comments. Uh, we're going through those now. We're sorting them out, making sure the ones that are in scope or out of scope are defined. But we did get an awful lot of comments back on the ODPs. And so, while I can't tell you exactly what we're going to do with those, there will be some changes going from the initial public draft to the final draft on the ODPs. But I'll just kind of leave it there, but you can expect some changes for sure. Talking about that feedback, I know you're still in your analysis process and all that, but was there anything that maybe surprised you or like, wow, that's a great point? You know, I, I think the feedback has been pretty consistent over the years. I think when the CMMC program started, 
already in the 800-171 made its first appearance in that program as part of the DFAR. The biggest issue, I think, or none, has been the cost to small and medium-sized businesses. And look, it's a fair point. When you look at even the requirements that were Rev 2, and now what's in Rev 3, and there's arguably more things in Rev 3 than Rev 2, mm -hmm. it can be a, a tall, a heavy lift for a small or medium-sized business. What a lot of people don't understand, though, is that is an issue that's outside the scope of what NIST can do. In other words, our primary responsibility at NIST is to define the security requirements based on our controls that are tethered to the moderate baseline because that's the level of protection required for CUI at the federal level. You know, one of our assumptions is that information does not lose value when it goes over the fence. So you have to have the equivalent safeguards and countermeasures. Now, how our individual customers are going to solve that small and medium-sized business problem, that really is up to them to decide how they're going to do that. It's not an easy problem, but there are ways to do it, whether you provide secure enclaves or whether you provide um, a limited basis, the hardware, the software, the firmware with those safeguards and countermeasures built in. There's probably 10 different ways or a cloud solution that could be determined to provide uh, like a FedRAMP moderate or FedRAMP high solution. But those decisions are outside the scope of what NIST responsibilities are, authorities are. But I do acknowledge it's a problem that has to be solved by the customers out there. And that the, I'm sure they're going to come to a solution. What it is, I can't say as yet, but I'm sure there's a lot of smart people thinking about that right now. A question on the ODPs. Do you think that there will be an opportunity for the Joint Task Force or some other centralized entity to populate those ADPs so that the agencies don't all have to do that individually? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think uh, that's the heart of the issue that we're struggling with now because we get a lot of input. Now, next to the small, medium-sized business cost. I think the next most commented topic or topic that people commented on were the ODPs. There's a reasonable discussion taking place. How many do we think we actually need? Is there an opportunity to scale those down? But I can't tell you that they're not all going to go away. There will be some ODPs left, even if we scale them back. And I'm not saying how many or what we're going to do yet because we haven't decided. But yeah. the need for ODPs is clearly there in certain circumstances. The question is, how did those ODPs get assigned? That was the big topic of interest. A lot of people want NIST to define those values for those ODPs. We stopped doing that a long time ago in 853. NIST does not have the authority or the responsibility to define those parameters. Those are usually best served by having a policy or some kind of a law regulation or a government-wide policy that would address those specific values for those parameters that are part of the controls in 53 or now the requirements. The reason is because as soon as we would pick a value, I guarantee you there would be parts of that community with them say, well, that's not going to work for us. We're X, Y, and Z type of organization. Our mission is this. I don't want to have to back up my system every 10 minutes. That's totally inappropriate. For some customers, every 10 minutes may not be enough, but some customers may want to go through monthly or weekly backup. It's just an example of a kind of a variable in one of our security controls. So you can see the problem. So we said that problem has to be solved by somebody up the chain, if you will. It could be someone like OMB. It could be somebody who is designated that was like NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration, because they are the executive agent for the CUI program. Or another interesting concept is the joint task force. And that's one of the things that's been broached at the task force. Would it be appropriate for the group to get together and have all the agencies around with all their customers that they have contracts with and say, okay, what would be a reasonable set of values, either specific values where they could agree, which is pretty hard to do sometimes, 
or it could be a range of values from, from this endpoint to that endpoint, or a maximum value or a minimum value. There's lots of different options. That would represent a kind of a collective, if you will, meeting of the minds, but it has to happen somewhere at that kind of joint task force level or an agency that has that authority or responsibility, either OMB or NAR or someone like that, maybe DHS, I don't know, whoever would sign up for that responsibility. So our job on the next draft is to figure out, do we have the right number of ODPs and what is that? sweet spot so we don't overwhelm the community with ODPs, but yet we keep the ones that are actually essential to doing the job. One of the ones I'll mention is the FIPS 140 crypto requirement that was hardwired into the old. We we did an ODP for that and we left it open to give a little more flexibility. So that's probably one that's going to survive because that's pretty important to the community. There would still be an opportunity for the joint task force if it was important enough to the feds to specify one type of encryption that they had to have and, and couldn't live without. That's their chance to do that. But again, it's not NIST responsibility to do that because we can't speak for all of our customers. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Can you talk about a new control 3.12.5 independent assessment? What is NIST's intent there? Well, this is one, again, that uh, got a lot of feedback or public Mm -hmm. comments, and it really traces back to our 853 Rev5. There's been a, a security control required at the moderate baseline and above for independent assessment. And the idea back even in the early days of 853, there was always the concept of assessments, even going back to our 53 Alpha, where we had the publication that talked about what kind of things do assessors do to assess those controls to make sure they're implemented correctly operating as, as intended and producing the desired effect with regard to meeting your security policy. So it's always been there. The question is, you have a continuum of options on assessments. First of all, assessments is a very broad umbrella. It could include testing, uh, regression testing, static analysis, dynamic analysis, pen testing. But it also includes evaluation, looking at design documentation, things like that. So there's a range of types of things that are under that assessment umbrella. And there's also a range of ways that you can carry that out from self-assessment. Let's call that on the extreme left side of the graph to a government team that shows up at your office and, and does that assessment with a government you know, team mm-hmm. to something in the middle where you have independent assessments that are carried out by independent third-party organizations like the three PAOs in our crypto program, the CVMP program, Cryptographic Module Validation Program. Those are independent testing laboratories that are accredited. Our common criteria labs are accredited. And then the government has oversight. They look at the results to make sure that those results are independent and they meet the quality standards of what assessments are all about. So when you have a self-assessment, it's certainly simpler for the organization. It probably costs less money because they're doing it themselves. But you also have to look at the possibility of things going wrong. And a self-assessment, if you don't do it right, and there's a problem that shows up in that system and a vulnerability didn't get closed down or, or something, we look at the impact of that to the mission or the business. So for low-impact systems, it's always been this philosophy that self-assessments are just fine because if you make a mistake, there's only a limited adverse impact on your system or your mission coming out of that mistake. However, when you go up to moderate impact systems, we're now looking at serious potential adverse impact on the mission and business. If something goes south and there's a breach or there's something that's exploited and that system capability goes away or you have an exfiltration problem or something like that. 
So that serious potential adverse impact was at a high enough level that we said, you know, we can't really trust this to self-assessment. There have to be independent view of that system to make sure that those controls and now the requirements are implemented correctly and operators intended and all the things that we want to make sure were buttoned down before that system goes into operation or continues to operate. So that's kind of where that whole notion started. And it ended up being at the moderate impact level. So now in Rev 5, all we're doing is transferring an independent assessment requirement from the control over to the requirement in the 800-171. Now, in the CMMC program, interestingly enough, they used to have five levels. Now they're down to three. That lower level, I think that's their 17 basic requirements. I think those are still self-assessments, but at that mid-level, that's the whole heart of the CMMC program. They're actually requiring that independent assessment already as part of that program. So in some sense, what we're doing in our special pub is consistent with 853, which it needs to be, but it really is already being reflected in, in some of the things the CMSC was already thinking about. So the one thing I will point out is that a lot of people think that independent assessment mean that you've got to go outside of your organization to get that assessment capability. That's not true. In our three publication, we define independent assessment as part of that control. And we talk about ways that you can have independence and still have people within your organization conducting those assessments. There have to be some degree of separation. So the people who are conducting the assessment aren't in the same chain of command, if you will, or they can't have undue influence. In other words, the basic idea is if you're an assessor, you've got to be able to take an honest look at that system and those requirements or control and bring bad news to the boss without feeling any sense of retaliation or undue influence. So if that can be set up by separate parts of the organization where they're under different management chains, so that separation is there. And ISO talks about that a lot in their accreditation guidelines. There's a whole guideline about what separation means as far as self-assessments and making sure you have independence in that regard. So I didn't want to make it sound like everyone's got to go out and spend a, a lot of money on going outside the organization. Sometimes organizations have that innate capability and they can take advantage of that to do those independent assessments from within their own organization structure. And as you mentioned, this is not a unique requirement. In the ISO world, you have a third party come in and do a certification assessment and then they come back for surveillance audit throughout those right. three-year cycle. So thank you very much. Let's talk about something in NIST 800-171 and DOD has termed this security protection assets, but I wanted to get your interpretation of what this means and maybe some examples of what you would consider this to be. There's a section in 800-171 that says the security requirements in this publication are only applicable to components of non-federal systems that process, store, or transmit CUI or that provide protections for such components, focusing in on the protections. What is the intent here from NIST? Can you give us some examples of components that do provide security protections? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of people are confused about that too. Certainly that if you've got a system that is processing, storing, or transmitting CUI, all those components that are involved in that system are obviously in play for the 171. But the modern systems and architectures are set up, there's a lot of distributed components that may be outside your system boundary that are providing you protection. For example, some organizations may have an authentication or an identity management server that manage credentials and things like that. So those things would be outside of that direct system, processing, storing, and transmitting CUI, but that system is communicating with other assets or other system resources outside of that boundary to get security capability 
properties. There's a term we use in the world of FISMA called inheritance, where if you are managing an enterprise and let's say you've got several different systems within the enterprise, a lot of times the security controls in AFD3 will be focused on the individual systems, but we also have a concept of inheritance. So the notion of common control was something we developed early on because there are lots of places in organizations where you can have a security control implemented that provides a common capability for all of those systems that are operating that inherit that. Some of the best examples might be on the non-technical side, a contingency plan or an incident response plan. That would typically be started out as a common control. That would be a contingency plan that applies to the enterprise writ large or the incident response plan. And the idea is to develop the common control first and when all the downstream systems inherit that capability. Now, a lot of times, though, individual systems may have specialization needs that common control cannot provide. Let's say there was a contingency plan or incident response plan provided by the enterprise, but your individual system may have specific requirements that extend that contingency plan or specialize it down to your particular system. Same thing with an incident response plan. You might have several systems that are just not that important. Maybe there's one critical system and your incident response plan has to include what happens when that critical system has an incident. And then you may react a little bit differently than the other systems, which are not quite as important. That came with this notion of a hybrid control which would be a little bit common control, a little bit system-specific. And so you'll see in the world of AFD3 across an enterprise, the totality of controls will either be common controls, system-specific controls, or when there's a relationship between common and system-specific, you may develop a hybrid control, which would take the best of the common, go down as far as you can, then specialize the rest under the specific system. That's really how that notion was transmitted into 171, recognizing that the system that you're concerned about where the CUI is rumbling around and going through its paces, there are other things outside of that perimeter that are providing legitimate and maybe very substantial protections for that system where the actual CUI is being processed or transmitted. Yeah. That's how it all came about. Okay, thank you. Let me add another example here, and I'd like to get your read on this. So I, sure. I've seen this interpreted two ways. The part about that provide protection for such components. I've seen it said, okay, that means antivirus. That means a vulnerability scanner. That means a lock on the door or a security guard. Provide protections, right? The other way I've seen it read is that if you have something in your system security plan that is referenced as meeting any control that would match that criteria. And I'll give you an example. So let's say we have a sign-in utility at the desk. It's an iPad. It syncs up to the cloud that people sign into that thing. And that's all it does. It doesn't unlock doors. It just collects people's sign-in logs. Would that be something that provides protection for such components? Or would that just be something that satisfies the control, but we don't have to apply the whole 110 security controls to that system? I'm going to answer your question, but typically we don't get down to the level of specific specific implementations. But I'm going to answer your question because I think it's a common one. And I would say that in the example you just talked about, if that iPad and that capability at the front desk is in any way providing information or supporting one of the other requirements, 
that is called out in that 171 or the security controls behind it, then I think that would be the kind of the touch point that would say, yes, that's part of the overall. Now, I think the first place I would look would be the PE family of controls that are referenced in the 171. And there aren't a whole lot of those, but there are some. I believe there's physical access control is an important part of that process. I could make an argument that the data that you're capturing at that front desk is part of the physical access control process, Mm. which is keeping the bad guys or people with unauthorized individuals out of that facility, which is part of that overall protection scheme set up by the control requirements that are currently part of here once every one. I think some of these things are judgment calls. And I think at the end of the day, every organization has to make those implementation decisions. The only advice I would give is it has to make good common sense. The why most people fail these assessments is that a lot of the assumptions they make are not documented. So when the assessor comes through, they're left with interpreting what you meant by that. And the mm-hmm. best thing you can do as an organization implementing the requirements in 171, this would apply to 853, is that in your security plan, just document all your assumptions. Paint a picture of what your strategy is to implement the control or the protection mechanisms. So when the assessor comes in, they don't have to guess what's in your head. They can see what path you take. Now, they may disagree with that, but a lot of times if you make a good cogent argument, common sense argument, and you can back it up with a rationale and justification, then in nine out of 10 cases, you're going to be just fine. Now, there are times when you just go down the wrong rabbit hole and you're in the totally the you know wrong place. And that's why assessors add value because their job is to take an independent look at what you've got. They understand mm-hmm. 53 and they understand 171, at least they should. But what they don't understand, and this is one of the problems, is they don't understand the environment of operation and the specific missions of that organization and the context of how each organization is implementing those requirements and controls to support their mission and business Mm -hmm. operations. So it's kind of a juggling act, it's a balancing act. On one side, you can be very dogmatic and you can go by the letter. On the other hand, a good assessor is going to understand the context of how those requirements and controls were implemented with regard to that organization's mission business operations and say, are they implemented to the degree that it does exactly as NIST is talking about? Are they implemented correctly, operative, intended? And here's the big part. Are they supporting the security policy of that organization? And that, again, that policy is going to be tethered back to the federal agency they're supporting because that's a reflection of that agency on the federal side. They expect those contractors to be putting in the necessary safeguards and countermeasures. So that CUI is protected as it would be on the federal side. And again, you know, CUI comes in lots of different flavors. Mm -hmm. Some of it, and we've seen this over the years, talk about design documentation for weapon systems. And there's a lot lot of things there that if you're bleeding and hemorrhaging this critical information, it has potentially catastrophic effects on the customer, in this case, the DOD or anybody else building next generation weapon systems, command and control systems. How about for NASA and space systems? All of this, if an adversary can get into your system and seal years of research and development and then turn around and try to implement that technology, and you can see a lot of these weapon systems that the adversary produced look an awful lot like ours. That hurts the warfighters. It hurts our space program. It hurts our national security. And it hurts our economic security for sure, because we then have to make that very substantial investment and Basically, the rug gets ripped out from under. So, you know, I know all CUI is not equal, but the stuff that the adversary is going after is pretty darn important. And it has huge implications on uh, the future of our country. 
One of the items we saw in the NIST 800-171R3 feedback and has been for some time was NIST providing some implementation examples. I know in the past I've heard that you all don't want to do that because in the words that were used, it was typically interpreted as the gospel truth and the only approved method. Someone on LinkedIn mentioned this, and I thought it was a great idea, was a collaboration with industry to provide examples or a number of examples for or the controls that would perhaps be reviewed by NIST just as a sanity check, but not come from NIST, but come from industry. Right. What are your thoughts on something like that? Well, I can tell you that implementation examples are a good idea. The reason why we steer clear then is because our controls are designed to be technology and policy neutral. Mm -hmm. If you take any one of our controls, let's say in the access control family, for example, or INA family, mm -hmm. those controls can be implemented on Linux platforms. Uh, they can be on Mac platforms or Microsoft platforms. So it's very difficult for us to talk about implementation guidance for specific controls. Now, if you have the opportunity with industry getting together to provide some examples, our National Cyber Security Center of Excellence, for example, works with industry all the time on specific problems. And part of that drill is to figure out the standards and guidance lines that we have at NIST. How would they be applied to certain industry-focused solutions? And you actually demonstrate the feasibility of that. So the concept is very sound. The question for us is that it's all about bandwidth because how many yeah. different implementations would you have to develop? Would one be enough? Like you said, if you focus on one, that becomes the approved solution. So we've tried to steer clear of even putting examples. We used to have a lot of examples for our controls. And then somebody said, well, it wasn't in the example list that you provided. So I didn't think it was okay. You go down the rat hole very quickly, unfortunately. So that's the primary reason why we steer clear. But that's not to say the idea itself doesn't have merit. And if industry wanted to get together to provide that as some kind of best practice, I don't think NIST would probably weigh in because then, again, we've got our thumb on the whole operation and we don't want that to be perceived as, you know, we're kind of nicking down to a certain set of solutions. So it's a difficult problem, but certainly some industry, I think, could address if they chose to do so. Yeah. Well, thank you. Any last thoughts that you'd like to add? No, I think it's been great. I, I, I really appreciate taking the time for this kind of long for podcast. I know it's a long time to listen, but there's so much to talk about in our field. And we have so many tremendous professionals in the field of cybersecurity, whether they're working in federal agencies or private sector, academic mm -hmm. uh, universities. I have such respect and appreciation for all those people in the trenches that do this job every day. It's not easy. They get up and they're underappreciated, probably underpaid in many cases. And my job has always been the easy job of developing the standards and the guidelines. The hard part is doing the things that you do and all your colleagues through the trenches. And I, I take my hat off to them. I salute them. And I hope to be able to serve and make their lives easier uh, in the future. And again, thanks for this extended time today. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. I really appreciate it. Thank you.